everybody. Welcome to my podcast, Pension Trends Plus with Atara, bringing you up-to-date information on pension funds, securities class action litigation, and all things related to your portfolio, and some life stuff as well. I'm Atara Hirsch-Torsky, securities class action attorney at AFNT in New York City. I am here today speaking with someone I really admire, Ari Mizell. Ari is the founder and product leader at Less Doing, a company he founded nine years ago. Ari is also a best-selling author of The Art of Less Doing and The Replaceable Founder. Ari is, a, Ari is a graduate of the Wharton Business School. Ari has turned his hobby, optimizing productivity, into a popular framework and consulting service for automating and outsourcing life's tasks. He is a self-described overwhelmologist whose insights into personal and professional productivity have earned him the title The Guru's Guru. If you work at a pension fund, run a pension fund, are a member of a pension fund, or have any kind of job at all, this podcast episode is for you. Ari, welcome to my show. I'm so happy to be speaking with you today. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me on the show. Yes. So, you know, Ari, I confess, a friend of mine who is a CEO of a 200-person company and someone I really love and respect told me about your book, The Art of Less Doing. And honestly, I have to say, my first reaction was, you know, I don't have enough time to read another book, right? I'm so busy with, like, kids, monitoring school. Like, I just can't possibly add anything else to my must-read list. But your book is more like a pamphlet, which is what I, I love about it. It's a super fast read. And after I read it, I confess, like, you completely won me over because in this little pamphlet, you pack so much information. And I thought, like, wow, as an attorney who represents institutional clients, your ideas could really make these institutions run better and more efficiently. So I want to jump right in. Tell us, what is the philosophy behind less doing? Yeah, so the idea really came out of a, a personal struggle that I had with a chronic illness called Crohn's disease. And essentially, I got sick and basically went from working 18 hours a day to working trying to work an hour a day and that extreme restriction on my time ultimately ended up becoming the basis for a completely new way of being productive and so the idea behind less doing is to optimize automate and outsource everything in your life and your business in order to be more effective because the real driving question there for me was if you could only work an hour a day what would you do and at that point, the question really isn't what would you do, it's what wouldn't you do. And if the things that you wouldn't do still needed to get done, then who or what is going to do them for you? And really everything sort of has grown from that. Okay, let me, let me back up a second. What were you doing at the time that you're working 18 hours a day? <laughs> Construction. <laughs> um, I was a, Oh, really? So like physical labor? Yeah, well, so yes. So I, I was in real estate development. And basically when I got out of college, I got involved in a really like uh, not too big project, but sort of a, an unexpectedly large project for someone with my lack of experience. And the, the deal was basically that, you know, going to the Wharton Business School as an undergrad or as a MBA doesn't really teach you how to build anything. So anybody who worked on the job was required to teach me their trade. That was, that was part of my, my rule. So I, in addition to running the business and the marketing and the sales and the zoning and the legal and political aspects of things, I was on site doing construction work every day. And it was the hardest work I've ever done in my life. And I loved it. But 
it was an incredible moment of leadership development for me and skills as well. Interesting. Would you say at the time you were somewhat of a control freak, like you needed to make sure that you understood everything that was happening in the company? Yeah, for sure. Definitely. I mean, I was, I was wearing all the hats, the hard hats and the regular hats. So I think that that's a, a challenge for people who need and a lot of people in leadership positions. So let's say you're, you know, directing a, a public pension fund and you have a, a staff, whether it's large or small, you feel like you have to control or at least properly direct everyone or else the whole thing is going to fall apart. I think that's a common feeling that leaders have. So that sounds like what was happening to you, right? Yeah. And I, I think part of the problem that entrepreneurs and founders and CEOs and everything leaders in general sort of face is that whether consciously or unconsciously, they experience the business as an extension of themselves and like a representation of themselves. And so it becomes that much harder to allow others to take control and do things on your behalf. Like it, it becomes this real source of like your own self-concept basically and how you see your own value, which is obviously very sort of deep psychological stuff, but that, that's a big part of it. You become, you begin to define yourself largely by what you do if you spend so many hours a day doing it. And so how do you take yourself out of that is really the question. So tell us then, okay, so you developed Crohn's, you suddenly couldn't work the way you were working, but everything still needed to run itself. So that's where you came up with less doing. Yes, and ultimately that's really evolved. So less doing was, well, is and was focused on personal productivity. And over the last several years, we've, I've really developed a program called the Replaceable Founder, which is much more focused on the business and how we make people at all levels in the business more replaceable so that the business can run and grow without them. Um, so yeah, at that point, I, as, as we've said, I, I was sick. I still had to run this business. I actually had accumulated an enormous amount of personal debt doing this project at the time. It was massively stressful in so many different ways. And I, I needed to create systems and processes to replace what I was doing myself. Well, I think I, I read in your book that you said something, and maybe I hope I'm quoting it correctly, that if you can't replace yourself in the business, like your, your business essentially can't really grow. And that's true, like whether you're founding a company, uh, working as the leader in the company, somehow you have to, the goal is to make yourself replaceable. Isn't that right? Yes. And you know, one of the ways to look at that is that people have an incredible ability to grow, but people cannot scale. <laughs> you never think about a person scaling, right? They grow, but they don't scale. Businesses, generally, you want them to and you need them to scale. And if you're not replaceable, then you automatically become a limiting factor in the business. And, and we see it all the time. The bottleneck on a bottle is at the top of the bottle, right? So like every time, I'd say nine out of 10 times when we see a business stalling or plateauing, it is, it is because of the founder. We don't want businesses to grow like in spite of the founder or the head of the company. We really want them to be able to grow beyond them. Right. But I think it's such a, it's almost, you know, oxymoronic, right? Like you feel like, well, I started this company or I'm leading this pension fund. I, I can't delegate because if I delegate, like they're just not going to do it the right way. I have to keep having my hands in it. So I think switching the mindset is really the, the key. So how do you go about switching that mindset? 
Well, and so the funniest thing about that is that what you just said that, you know, they, uh, how could they, like, I started this, how could they possibly do it right? The assumption that just because you started the business, you're doing it right is false to begin with. <laughs> right. So to think that, like, well, and, and the thing is, is that that may have been what made you unique. Sure. You started the business, but you're no longer able to rely on your uniqueness, right? And, and it's a myth that we tell ourselves that we're so unique. And I hear it all the time. Look, I've seen, I have seen easily thousands of businesses at this point. I've worked with hundreds of individuals and everybody thinks that they're unique and they're not, I'm not. There are, there are a million business coaches out there. There are other people who teach productivity and do those things. There's certainly elements of what I do that I think are unique, but that's not what I'm like holding on to. And so if you try to become unique, then you become irreplaceable. And if you can't be replaced, you can't move on. You can't explore. Ultimately what we want for our business, what we want for our founders is to be able to leave the business, explore, contribute, learn, and bring those contributions back into the business. But if you can't leave, you can't do that. So it's very interesting, though, because practically, you know, I have a lot of um, institutional clients who I'll, I'll meet with and they'll say to me, I'm working these crazy hours. I'm trying to, you know, manage this huge fu public fund. Let's say I've got 100 staff under me. I just I never get home. And, I, and I'll say to them, especially after, you know, having read your book, I'll say, yeah, well, you know, what can you delegate? Like, think about it. And often they'll say to me, oh, but you know what, Atara, every time I try to delegate, it gets done wrong. So if my hand isn't in it, the, everything's falling apart. And what do you respond to that? Because that is a reality, right? So is there that we need to train people correctly and we're not doing that? Like, what's the answer to the, the practicality of, of delegating and finding that the job is not getting done as it should be? So every time I give a talk, and you know, obviously it's, it's different now in, in COVID world, but I mean, I've spoken all around the world to thousands of people. I always like to ask people, uh, how many of you ever outsourced something? And you'll see you know, a lot of people raise their hands, half the audience, whatever, raise their hands. And then I say, and how many of you have ever had a bad experience outsourcing something? And typically more people will raise their hands than initially had raised their hands to the question, right? But then I have to say, well, I'm sorry to tell you all, but it's very likely that it was your fault. And most leaders, most, most people in business and most leaders too, were just not that great at communicating what we think we're great at communicating. A leader may be really good at motivating people and setting a vision, but when it comes to conveying to somebody what success looks like and the resources they might need and overcoming the inherent shortcuts that we develop because we've been doing it for so long, you're basically providing somebody with incomplete information and the person you're providing it to probably has less experience and less knowledge than you do. And at the same time, you're creating an expectation that they're going to be able to provide a result that is better than the one that you are providing. And it never works. So you're essentially setting everybody up for failure. Can you give me like a practical example of how yeah. you've, you know, told clients? Okay. Yeah. So we have a framework called the six levels of delegation. So, so one of the big problems that people face when they try to delegate, and I use outsource and delegate interchangeably, just to be clear, uh, is that 
uh, they see it as very binary activity, basically meaning like either I have to do everything myself or you have to do everything. And neither of those create a very comfortable situation, but that's just sort of inherently how we see it. I teach six levels of delegation. And the very first one is do what I say, right? So I don't want your opinion. I don't want you to think about this. Just do the things I tell you and nothing else. All the way down to level six, which is just get it done. Meaning I don't want to know. I don't care. I trust you. I'm empowering you make it happen. And then there's everything in between. And at level five, which is basically um, you you decide you get it done within certain limits. So that's a really common one. I'll give you that as a concrete example. Uh, in my company, any decision that is a, a monetary decision that is $500 or less does not require approval by anybody else in the company. Uh, and a big, a big reason for that is and this happened once, which is why I put this in place and why it's part of the system. But I went away for uh, a long weekend with my family and came back on like a Wednesday to find out that a $200 decision had not been made on the Monday and somebody was getting held up by that. And it was very frustrating to hear that, but I hadn't set those expectations. So now that's no longer an issue. And there's a very big difference between, and, and, and to be clear, when you, delegate in this manner and you use this level of delegation, we actually have a whole worksheet that you go through, but you actually have to tell people what the level is. Because if I tell somebody in the company, we need a new CRM, okay? That's, that's the task. Level one would be, hey, I just was at this conference. I saw this new CRM called Active Campaign. Go sign us up for Active Campaign uh, you know, with the, the cheapest plan and give me my login. That's very different then saying to somebody, we need a new CRM, and this is a level six task. That means that the person has completely way to figure out what the right system is. They can do the research, they can spend the money, they can talk to other people if they need to, and they can make the right decision. And that's extremely empowering, right? But you're setting that expectation up front. Uh, and and those are, that's exact same task, but delivered in two very different ways. And whether you choose level one or level six is not better or worse, but it's what I'm comfortable with and what the other person knows are their boundaries. But isn't that whole notion then predicated on the idea that people who work for you are mostly very competent and what if they're not? Or what if this, they're not up for the task that you're trying to empower them to do? And that's a reality, right? When, when you have a huge staff, does this somehow weed out people that can't be empowered? Or is the notion that everyone can be empowered? Well, so, and it's, it's a great question because that just to back up for a second there, I don't want to be offering somebody who is not as competent as I think they should be the opportunity to operate at level six. So even more so, you want to be able to be clear about this stuff because if you do have people that you're not sure that competent, then that, that of course speaks to a really messed up hiring process, by the way. Uh, but if, if you do have people that you don't necessarily trust in, then you really don't want to be in a situation where you're like, hey, you know, you, we need a CRM. Like you need to be, uh, in that case, you need to be more explicit. And while that might sound like it takes more time or it's less efficient, you're ultimately creating a, a greater sense of calm, right? And something that you don't have to worry about and avoiding a mistake that might happen. I get that. Now, so let's talk on that similar vein about actually um, letting people go, right? I find that a lot of, you know, my my fund clients will say, you know, there's so much difficulty in, in firing people. 
how do you say like, you know what, this isn't working? Because let, the reality is, right, Ari, it's not gonna work all the time um, for every personality. Some people are not suited for the job that they interviewed with, whether that was bad interviewing, a bad application, doesn't matter, right? So let's, now we have people in our company and not everyone is going to be competent and up to the task. Isn't it important to, you know, cut uh, the ties sooner rather than later? What are your thoughts on that? Oh, absolutely. I mean, we always have to, I, I love the old adage, you know, hire fast, fire faster. Uh, and I think that a lot of times what you see is that very few companies in my experience do a really good job of in their hiring process and their training process of providing a realistic uh, environment uh, to train in, right? And to understand like what that company is going to be like so you can see how good of a fit they are because everybody looks good on paper, right? We don't, we've never seen a bad resume, but that ultimately doesn't really mean anything in the real workplace. And I, I, I've, I've hired some very experienced, very senior people before who have, you know, 20, 30 years of experience. And I would always say like, I, and I, without any disrespect, like the 20 years of experience is great, but you don't have 20 years of experience working with me. And that doesn't mean that I'm at a higher level. It's just different. Everything. Different. I do things differently. Right. Yeah. And, you know, like, uh, and it's not hard to do, by the way, to have somebody come and have like on the job experience for a couple of days, see how they work with the team and how they interact. I just got off the phone with a, a school that we're looking at for, for one of my kids because we're going to be moving and they have the kid come for two days to the school, like, and have two full school days to see if they're a good fit both ways, which I think is amazing. Fantastic. But, yeah. But yet we, we often rely on what people present in an interview on paper. And so one of the things that I really do, uh, very, uh, uh, I'm very like strict about when I'm doing interviewing and, and examining people's experience is uh, two things. One, uh, I'm always more interested in seeing how somebody fixes a mistake rather than how they make something new. So if I have a copywriter that I'm hiring, for example, and we've done this many times, I've, I've hired hundreds of people and you take a copywriter and you ask to see what they've done. And that's pretty common. They'll show you a portfolio. They'll, and for all you know, they might be showing you an article that they wrote over the course of six months that three mentors corrected and you know, all that kind of stuff. Two professors, right. <laughs> right. But the right way in my opinion, to find those people, to hire those people is to give them a really bad piece of copy and ask them to fix it, you know? And so that's good. And then like when I interview people, one of the questions I always ask is tell me about a time that you screwed up at work and how you handled it. You know, those are the, th I don't want to know what someone's greatest strength is. Like I want to know how they operate when things don't go well, because inevitably they won't. I love that. I love that. Tell me about your failures and I'll, I'll tell you how you're going to actually succeed. Well, my, and my, my favorite, interview question of all, which I always ask last, is if we don't hire you, why do you think that will be? Oh, wow. And do, and do you feel, I mean, you're putting people so much on the spot. Are you, are you actually getting them uncomfortable? Are they giving like real answers you find? Yeah, that's the key. I mean, the thing is, is that somebody who doesn't get uncomfortable with that question is not going to answer it the right way, you know, because what you're really asking them to do with a question like that is essentially be a little bit introspective and figure and see how they handled themselves in the interview, essentially. Right. So like, 
you know, the bad answer, which I've heard many, many times is, you know, well, I'm sure there's just, there's so many great candidates and, you know, maybe I don't stand out. And it's like, well, you're, you hit that one on the head. <laughs> right now, you're not standing out. You know, if I were to be, if I were to, and, you know, to be fair, like I've thought about this over many years, but if I were to be asked that question, I know what I would say, which is, I, I would probably say something along the lines of like, look, I know that, you know, in the interview, I probably come off as somebody who's kind of a lone wolf and likes to do his own thing. But, you know, the truth is that I've actually run teams, I've been on teams, that kind of thing. So, like, but I know that that's how I appear. Right, right. I get it. Oh, wow. I think that's just a brilliant strategy. I love that. So tell me, Ari, you've coined a new term, which I love, overwhelmologist. Tell me exactly what that means in Ari language. Yeah. So... I deal with overwhelm on a regular, you know, daily basis. That's what we said. Of course. What I said. <laughs> As a father. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, and there's so many different ways that, that people experience uh, their overwhelm. And ultimately, the worst case, the worst kind of overwhelm, which I do see, unfortunately, far too often, is when people get into a situation where they feel like no matter what they do, they're going to disappoint someone. Uh, whether that's their clients, their team, themselves, their family, their friends, uh, they just, there's no good move basically. And we see it again all the time. So that's where we get this whole, I'm sorry, I say BS concept of work-life balance, right? Because there is no such thing in my... I, I agree with you. Yeah. It, is a, it is a work-life integration and to try to achieve balance is just going to, you're going to be constantly putting yourself out of balance basically. So the idea that like, oh, I, you know, I stop work at five o'clock and I can go to my kid's soccer game. But that person sitting at the soccer game thinking about like the client and all that kind of stuff. And it, it ultimately, they're just defeating everything, right? But whereas if you were to say like, it's okay, actually, if I can communicate very efficiently, which is something that we teach. And during the soccer game, I can send a 30 second voice message to somebody and put something in motion, know that it's in motion and go back to focusing on what I'm doing. I think that that's a much better way to operate. So in other words, it's not sitting at the soccer game saying, okay, for two hours, I'm not doing anything right. but watching this game. I got it. Okay. That's very interesting because I try to have a policy, um, you know, now with COVID, your life and home have really melded in a new way. But before that, like when I would come home from the office, I would say, you know, for three hours now, I don't take work calls. I don't look at my phone. I actually put my phone in another place. And I have to say that that's been really nice for my kids. They know, oh, like mommy doesn't talk on the phone now. Mommy doesn't do emails now. But it's also, I have to say, gives me a certain level of anxiety of that I could feel in my chest. <laughs> so I like this permission to like say, okay, maybe I could look at my phone and just get rid of like three emails pretty quickly. Well, yeah. And that's the thing is that, the, so the key here, one of the, the like the critical elements that people have to learn and understand is how to communicate in an asynchronous fashion, right? And really understand that that's what the tools are meant for. So email is an asynchronous tool, but a lot of people don't treat it that way because it's just sort of this like open portal for them all the time. Um, we use a tool really extensively called Voxer, which is almost like a walkie-talkie app and you can send voice messages in a very efficient way between anybody. And that is, I'd say 99% of my communication on a regular basis is asynchronous, uh, including like we do a daily stand-up with my team, which is asynchronous. Everybody on my team is a stay-at-home mom. And ha my COO has four kids. So like we, we check in asynchronously. I, I don't ever do live client calls. Everything is done asynchronously. So they can send me 
a 10-minute voice message if they want, which I can listen to at two, three, four times speed six hours after they sent it because I have a few moments. I can think about it for a couple hours and respond to them with a two-minute message that is the exactly perfect answer that they need. You know, I can have hundreds of conversations that way without it taking almost any time at all. Right. And, you know, I'm a huge multitasker myself. So I'll tell you what I don't love. I, I think Zoom is great. It's really allowed, you know, a lot of um, freedom to do things out of the actual office. But what I don't love about it is that you cannot multitask when you're on Zoom, right? And suddenly we went from this culture where we could have a conference call. I could have my earbuds in my ear, my phone in my pocket, and I could be doing um, something for the kids or washing the dishes or whatever it is and still focusing on my call. If you're a good multitasker, you can do that. But suddenly with Zoom, you're like actually sitting at your desk, somebody is looking at you and watching you and you can't move. And I think that that is something to think about also because I don't think that that works in every situation. And the idea now that everyone's like always like, oh, schedule a Zoom call where I'm like, what about just a regular conference call? So I think that's also something to think about. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, I mean, Multitasking is not really a thing. We're ultimately doing something that's called context switching, where you're just rapidly switching back and forth between tasks, which women are marginally better at, by the way. Uh, and, is that right? Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I do notice that. <laughs> very, mar very marginally. Uh, but but we're not. If you're if you're truly like in the true sense of it, multitasking, you're really just taking quality and focus away from both or three or four things that you're focusing on. Doesn't mean that we can't do it and and sort of struggle through it. And you can combine a low focus task with a high focus task, such as you know making kids lunch and being on a conference call, for example, which believe me, I've done many, many times. Uh, but the other thing is to recognize that that's what we're doing and understand that like this, you know, okay, this I'm, I am taking quality away. Like I'm not giving my full focus to this thing. And that's again, why asynchronous communication works so well, because with the example I gave, I, you know, I have some, I have some, a couple of very high level coaching programs that I run and the people that are paying what they're paying are expecting to have my undivided attention. Your undivided attention. But the, but the thing is, is that if they send me a 10 minute message and I think about it for a few hours and I send them back a 90 second message with exactly what they needed and like the perfectly thought out well, you know, rehearsed response, not even rehearsed, but the, the right response. Well crafted. Yeah, right. Well crafted, right. Then we didn't need to get on a 60 minute Zoom call or phone call or anything. We exchanged 11 and a half minutes of audio, which again, I could listen to at multiple speed and they got exactly what they needed. All right, I'm, I'm integrating Voxer right now. Is that V-O-X-E-R? Yeah, it's, uh, it, it's the most uh, powerful tool I've ever used. I'm gonna, I, it sounds amazing. So just again, tell me like you're a coach, right? So if you're um, coaching at a very high level, they want Ari, right? Whoever's paying doesn't want anyone else who works for you. So that means you're still, and, I, and, and I'm dealing like with a lot of people, you know, as a lawyer myself in the law firm, right? They ultimately, your clients want you. And I, I do try to delegate as much as I can, but I find that at a certain point, I'm, I'm just not able. And I, it sounds like you're probably not always able, right? Because they're paying for Ari, they want Ari. But there are only so many hours in the day for Ari to do his coaching. So how do you do that? By 
making myself replaceable. So it's actually, it's, it's a great question because it's, it's been the major focus of everything that we've been doing for the last couple of years in my program, particularly uh, it's not, this is not Ari's company. This is less doing and less doing is a methodology that stands on its own separate from me and doesn't require me. So I have two coaches that work for me. I'd say that in the last six to seven months, anybody who's joined the program probably hasn't, they, I don't even know they've met me probably uh, because the program is running on its own. I still do offer some very, very expensive and exclusive, like uh, very selective one-on-one -on -one coaching with people. But even that is still done over Voxer. I don't need, and what I try to explain to people is there's two things. One, so for the people in sort of the, like the, the regular mastermind programs that I run, the question really at that point is, you know, do you want it to be good or do you want it to be me? Right. And it's not to say that those are mutually exclusive, but which is more important. Most people I would say want it to be good. They want it to be the thing that they need. So if it, can come from me, then maybe that makes it sound better. But the truth is, is that we've created system. This isn't just me like making stuff up, you know, we've created an actual system. And if you create a system, rather than just BSing your way through calls and, you know, conversations, then that should be able to stand on its own if that's the focus. Um, so we've never had any pushback on that ever with anybody. And there's many things with those systems and processes now that my team does better than me. You know, so like we run strategy sessions for our clients and I think we, we did a promotion at our last event where a couple of people who signed up got to do theirs with me. And there's a whole form that we're supposed to use and stuff. And I just was, I opened it up and I was like, you know, I'm just going to do it my way. And like, so I, they probably hopefully got a good experience, but it's not, it's not the uh, standard that we've now set. So, you know, what's very interesting that you're saying, Ari, is that in order to really function and to have your staff working at its optimum and your team working at its optimum and grow your business, whatever that may be, you really have to take your ego out of the picture. Oh, yeah, that's that's the biggest one and, and, and the hardest for many, too, you know, because yes, I think so. It's, I think so. It's their baby, you know, and there's all that that kind of. Uh, garbage, honestly, that we tell ourselves. And, and yes, or you know, I went to school, I went to Harvard, I went to Yale, I did, did so many years for this. I'm the only person who can possibly do this. And I think that when you step back and you take your ego out of it, that's when you can really grow and function. I think that's true of of your program and and life generally. Um, so I thank you so much for coming on. This has been really so wonderfully. Um, informative, even for me. I, I, I read your book, but I've I'm, I'm learned a bunch of new things from you today. So tell um, everyone where they can find your website and your book. So, so anyone who's interested, and I know they will be, will be able to get that. Yeah. So uh, everything is at lessdoing.com. They can find everything there. And uh, I'm on most social media where the company actually is on most social media as at Ari Mizell for things. But uh, we run, um, workshops every couple of months we've got a couple online courses and we do have this coaching program as well oh and the last thing too is we have a really great facebook group called the replaceable founder which is a free facebook group of course and i think we have just about three thousand people in that now that are constantly sharing really great information hacks tips tools and things and uh, i really like to push people to that as much as possible so they yeah i'm joining it as we speak <laughs> Awesome. I, I think it's amazing. Thank you so much for coming on, Ari. It was a real pleasure speaking with you. Thank you.